And we're on. Welcome right. back to the weekly program, Park Media, Sergio and Vince. Except this week we have a special guest, and it's Kim Sipes. Hello. Hey. Glad to see you guys. Hey. Glad to see you. Serge, how you doing? Sure, I'm doing pretty good. Just came uh, back from home. I uh, went to visit my folks for a couple of weeks, and I'm ready to get back in the action. How's their, uh, how are your folks? They're really good. Um, they're good. My dad finally retired, and um, so we're just, uh, they're kind of fixing things up around, and he's trying to get adjusted. Um, he was a CNC machinist that worked a lot, five, six, seven days a week, so. He's just trying to get the pace down a little bit slow. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, everybody's doing good. You know, I mean, I, as good as you could do, I guess, in these times. <laughs> He's just trying to have some drinks and relax. Yeah, really? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and we were blessed, Kim. We were blessed with a bunch of uh, Ukrainian uh, sausages and cheese cakes, and cakes ooh, and... Ooh, 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 all right. Yeah. I'll drop it off for you. Okay. I'll drop it off. You know where I live. <laughs> I know, I know. I shouldn't have divulged that because now we have to share with people. <laughs> so, yeah, well, how you been, Kim? Doing good. Doing good. Doing a lot of writing, so that's good. Um, yeah, a lot of reading, so... Well, tell us a little bit, right, for people who don't know Kim Sipes. Yeah, who are you, Kim? Yeah, who, who are am you? I? What are you? Uh, <laughs> Give us your whole story. Oh, yeah. Five-minute version. <laughs> Two and a half. You get 45 <laughs> seconds each decade. <laughs> you guys are busting my butt already. <laughs> Always. I'm yeah. sorry. No. Um, well, I mean, for the last... I'm, I'm a vet. I was in the Marine Corps, 1969 to 73. Got out, bummed around, was a printer for, for a number of years, and then uh, got out of that. And eventually made my way to academia. Went back and got a got a eventually got a PhD and have been teaching at Purdue University Northwest in Westville, Indiana, since 2004. So doing a lot of writing. I I, I have this weird idea that uh, working people deserve to be treated with respect. I know that's a weird idea these days. Strange. And uh, so I do I. I I consider myself a global labor scholar. I'm doing a lot of writing, particularly on the, on the labor movement in the Philippines and also the AFL-CIO foreign policy, things like that. So finding uh, enough stuff to keep writing about. And you were born in the Marine Corps then. Right. So you were, <laughs> how about those, how about those 18 years before no, the Marine Corps? No, just 17. I went, I beat the draft, brother. How about I, those, uh, you don't have to go into detail, but like where, where are you originally from type of thing? Okay. I'm also. Orig I'm originally from a small little town called Coolidge, Arizona. It's about 5,000 people on a big day, uh, right, right in the desert. Uh, I'm a desert rat and grew up there, but also my uh, stepfather later, um, my mom was married, divorced three times. Her second husband at one time became a guard on Alcatraz. And so I lived on Alcatraz from time I was eight to 11 and a half. Wow. So that's a little something wow. that uh, not many people can claim. That's right. I don't yeah. think a lot of people who even know you might know that. Yeah. yeah. It's, you Did know, you it, swim the bay? I'm sorry? Have you tried to swim uh, across the bay? No. <laughs> <laughs> I'm dumb. I'm not stupid. Three and a half years, though, you were yeah. in Alcatraz. Yeah, from eight to 11 and a half. And how does that, is it? I'm assuming there's multiple buildings on the property. Yeah. And then where did you guys live on the property? Well, they have the, the prison was up at the top. It's several layers. And okay. we were down below. There were 65 families. We uh, used to have to take the boat every day to San Francisco to go to school. 
Oh, wow. And uh, we were known as cool. Alcatraz Gang, and for some reason, nobody messed with us, even in elementary school. Oh, yeah. I always forget because you ended up in the Bay later in your life. Yeah. Do you think part of that was because you had that taste of it when you were younger? I mean, I know a, a confluence of things and, you know, p- propelled you to, to end up in the Bay, but... Well, I have a special place in my heart for, for the Bay Area, for yeah. all of it. I mean, because one of the things... Um, see, we left in 63. So that was before the hippie movement and the youth and stuff like that. And my folks used to give me an incredible amount of freedom. So I would, on a Saturday, I'd get up 6, 7 o'clock in the morning and come home at midnight, 1 o'clock, boat, you know, the last boat home. And I'd just run the streets of San Francisco. I used Hell to, yeah. Cool. I used to know parts of the city really well. That's awesome. Yeah. That's awesome. And then where did you end up going from there into the Marine Corps? Well, we went... Like the to, teen years. Um. Uh, we went for a summer to Texarkana, Texas. Didn't like that. Went back to Arizona. Then my folks' uh, marriage broke up, and I went to live with my father up in Albuquerque. So I lived there for about four and a half years. We, that was a tough time. We didn't get along too well. And then came back to Phoenix, Arizona, which is where I did my senior year in high school, and I graduated from there. And then a month and a half later, my ass is on them yellow footprints in MCRD in San Diego. Okay, so yeah, let's get to that because I know today we did want to somewhat focus on uh, our wonderful president, Donald J. Trump's uh, comments about veterans being losers and uh, I forget what else. But um, so you, so the year is 1969. Yeah. You graduate high school. What, where you were living in Phoenix, how much penetration was there from like the counterculture? Very little, very little. Right. It was, I can't remember it significantly and we saw it on TV, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, I don't remember in our high school even. Right. So it was, we were all pretty straight, pretty conservative. Yeah. And, uh, we had to deal with the draft. I mean, that was the thing for us growing up in the sixties is that we all had to deal with the draft. So, that meant not only the men who were subject to the draft, but the women who were their friends, their lovers, their sons, daughters, you know, that kind of stuff. So it was sort of ever-present. Uh, I mean, I grew up from... I mean, I can remember talking to somebody. I knew we had troops in Vietnam as early as 1961. So I was still on Alcatraz when I, re, when I learned that. So my whole, my whole teenage years, Vietnam was, was the looming presence. And you had to deal with that. And uh, I, could, I could have gone to college, but uh, I, played, I, played the, I gamed the system and did much better than I really could do. And I knew I couldn't go to college with those expectations. So I had to, you know, so I had to figure out about the military and uh, decided I did not want to be a grunt. Uh, that, I, you know, that just didn't appeal to me at all. Wanted some technical training. Smart. Uh, Talked to, talk to the Marine recruiters. Talked to several of them. Uh, I was looking for the Air Force recruiter. Never could find him. But you sought them out. They didn't find you. Right. No, I was 17. I right. wasn't even draft bait yet. Right. But my, you know, you have to realize that my mother was married and divorced three times, and each one was a vet. You know, my, my biological father was, was uh, training to operate a landing craft in the invasion of Japan when the war ended. You know, and then he came back in Korea. My my uh, first fo- stepfather had been in the Army Air Corps uh, between uh, World War II and Korea. And then the third man she married was a lifer in the Navy. 
I mean, he'd been on submarines. He 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 had been on the Scorpion and transferred off just before the Scorpion went down. They never found anybody. Uh, and then he was he did a tour in Nam on swift boats in the Delta. So I'd grown up in that militaristic culture. Uh, my family uh, originally from the South, although I was born in the Southwest. So it was almost inevitable as the first grown son that I would go in the military. And the generations of people, I mean, I think it's hard also for people these days to understand that it, you know, in this country back then, there were already waves of uh, veterans from multiple generations who had served in war. I mean, this is so much different today in the post-Vietnam era without the draft and, of course, without any major wars from Vietnam all the way up into really Iraq and then Afghanistan. I mean, Afghanistan before Iraq, but then how it unfolded. But in any case, you know what I mean? I mean, you're talking many decades between Vietnam and Iraq, whereas you've got World War One, World War Two, Korea, Vietnam, like one after another after another. Yeah, yeah. A big difference. The other thing is that for Vietnam, as well as earlier, so we had the draft. That meant everybody was susceptible to go. Now, some people dodge the draft, like our wonderful president. Chicken yeah. shit. Well, like no, the last, what? Well, Obama Three was, out of the last four. Obama was too young. Clinton, Clinton dodged the yeah, draft. Yeah, Clinton and Bush. And, yeah, George, he deserted. Yeah. He was in the National Guard, and then he deserted, <laughs> although nobody will admit that. Unfucking real Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, if anybody else had just taken off, their asses would have been tracked down and slammed quick. But you also had this very positive kind of perspective, right, from World War II. So before you joining the military, like the military, like I was growing in the Soviet Union. So it was just like this positive force that yeah. stops fascism. And it's like this very positive outlook on the military. Obviously, yeah. the Korean War was uh, the forgotten war. but right. um, Well, Korea, Korea was shorter and also it didn't require the the massive mobilization that world war ii did correct i mean now now i understand the soviet union lost 27 million people in world war ii in the u.s we in both the atlantic and the pacific we lost about four hundred and fifty thousand. so the losses were just on a totally different magnitude but within the u.s we did mobilize pretty extensively and so we had that in our culture as well the, like you said serving in the military was something noble it was something you were you did and you were proud of and things like that so right yeah very different than your day i mean because you know even iraq and afghanistan we're talking about less than one percent of the population that ever goes in the military today yeah it's very very different but there's yeah. also an interesting factor too because there was a lot of opposition during world war one right yeah against the war back uh, here at home in general like this imperialism like the world war one was perceived as like this imperial adventure i don't know specifically if I go in Europe. that far but it was a very unpopular war people thought the u.s should not be involved in european affairs yeah i don't think they'd put it in the terms of imperialism although it was but i mean that's not the way it was perceived it was just it's none of our business who are we to get involved in europe World yeah. War II is different because we were the U.S. was attacked at Pearl Harbor. Now, in reality, Hawaii wasn't part of the U.S. You know, it was a colony. Yeah, but they attacked <laughs> our ships and sure, our, you know, and our forces, and uh, so that was well. There was a whole sense in World War One too that we had gotten out of that. I mean, so to Kim's point, I mean to Serge and Kim's point, I mean there was a whole sense 
um, maybe they wouldn't have put it in imperial terms, but they definitely were like, the sense was we are not Europe, and why wouldn't why in the hell would we get involved in these old world uh, conflicts between you know these old world countries and. Yeah, I mean, obviously, after World War II, that changes. But there's also a dark side to that. I mean, I think we've talked about this in the past. I mean, there's a significant amount of World War II vets who came home, and they were really fucked up. And the numbers now, the more and more the numbers come out, you know, there's the suicides and the divorce rate. And, you know, there was a... Yeah, it's something we don't talk about. I mean, it's my grandfather never talked about it. I mean, he just uh, sat in his chair and smoked his cigar, and he had two Purple Hearts and... You know, spent uh, 32 months in uh, combat and uh, in the uh, in theater in uh, Italy. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, you know, never talked about it though. But, but that's a common thing. You, yeah. You two guys, as much as well as I know you, I've never had you. You've never sat down and said, "This is where I was. This is what we did in a in a you know in a, a coherent place." I've gotten bits and pieces of what you did and where you were and stuff like that. But you've never sat down and talked to me, another vet. I mean, so it's, this is not something new that vets don't talk. I mean, war really sucks. You know, there is no good war. People do, do some terrible things and they're not proud of them and they just want to forget this shit and they don't tell anybody unless say like somebody was, you served with somebody and you could talk about this shit. You were both there somebody's an outsider nobody talks to so it's not but i think the point you're making is that world war ii got glorified as the quote the good war unquote Mm -hmm. um no war is good we know that Mm -hmm. Uh, there was tremendous devastation you know there was terrible fighting things like that um and that didn't give the guys that fought any chance to talk about that you know, if it was terrible or if they killed a bunch of people or, you know, something like that. Um, there was just no room for that. And so so people came back and they didn't talk about it specifically. But even, you know, guys that went came back from Vietnam very rarely would talk and only to other vets and likelihood only people who they knew really well or who... Uh, who was at the same battle or they were in the same unit or something like that. There had to be quite a bit of commonality before people would talk. Yeah. And that's part of the problem is that one of the things that you need to do is you need to talk about this shit. You need to get this, this shit out. I mean, that's all it is. It's, it's like a, a, a blister. You got to puncture it and get it out. And until you do that, you can't get it out. Well, people don't, that don't do it. A lot of them, I think, are the ones that are that are getting into the the heroin addiction, you know, the opi- opioid abuse, the suicide, shit like that. Well, I'm, and we we've talked about. I mean, obviously, maybe we haven't sat down and talked about things. But once I joined the Iraq Veterans Against the War, that was like the whole um, the whole thing. So we actually had that. We got lucky that we. <clears throat> found that platform or found those people who are on the same page, how they, well, at least not everyone, but how they perceived that it was unjust war and that we had to do something and, you know, test testifying and talking to each other. And so, I mean, for me, it definitely, definitely helped out a lot just, uh, but being around veterans who are conscious of the impacts of the war and what they really are in the Mm -hmm. way and trying to do something about it. So a little bit different than going to DAV and going downstairs into a bar 
you know, yeah, and yeah. having drinks and then talking about these war stories where you, de- you know, dehumanization and violence and stuff like that. Right. So, no, I mean, I think I think IVAW was important for you guys, and I remember that that testimony that you did in, in front of Congress. I mean, you guys fucked me up for another week. I mean, I wasn't worth a shit after listening to, you know, what you had said, what what you and the others had said. I mean, it was it was uh, incredibly impactful, but. It was stuff that you guys were able to at least get out of your system to yeah. a certain extent. And I think that was good. Yeah, it's interesting because I'm, I'm reading um, Oliver Stone's book, Chasing the Light, and he's a Vietnam veteran, which growing up I didn't know. It's interesting growing up in the 90s as a kid, the narrative in the kind of mainstream media was that Stone was this like goofball liberal. You know, it was like, oh, Stone's this goofy liberal Hollywood director. Like I never knew he was a veteran until I was – out of the Marine Corps, or no, in the Marine Corps, watching his movies, and then a friend, Vic, told me. Oh, okay. But um, it's interesting how different the trajectory is for different veterans, and I want to get into this. But what's interesting in his book is that it t- it was it took him a long time that he was really angry at everyone for right. many years after he first got out, including protesters. Not because he was for the war, but because it you know, as he says in the book, he's like his attitude, which I think you'll understand because you you know spent time with Sergio and I uh there's a passage in the book when he was when he says you know fuck Nixon fuck the protesters he's like why don't we all just get guns and mow these motherfuckers down like that was his thinking at 23 24 coming home from Vietnam sitting in an apartment in New York seeing what's going on isolated no veterans around yeah it took him until the early 80s to then meet Ron Kovic which you know makes me think like the point that you're making about certain veterans there's veterans that we know who came home and didn't have any i mean so a lot of vets think that when they join or a lot of people think that when they join the military that when they come home or when they're done with the military it's going to take them somewhere else Mm -hmm. and what ends up happening of course is a lot of veterans join the military and then when the military's finished with them or when they're finished with the military, they end up right back in the same place uh, that they left. Right. <laughs> and a lot of veterans didn't, you know, they they didn't have people they could connect with, solid families, friends, let alone thoughtful, creative, you know, sort of intellectually stimulating people who were uh, opposed to the war. Right. I mean, that's a whole different you compare our experience coming home at first um, to, you know, a lot of veterans coming home, and it's, I mean, dr- radically different. Yeah. No, it was radically different. Uh, you know, I think one of the things about for our people coming home, first, first of all, a lot of people, you know, they, they did their t- tour in Nam and they came back, and then they didn't have too much time, and so they maybe went to a base and then got out. And that, that was one thing. But we had a generation that was alive in a whole different way than what you've ever seen. I mean, you have to realize we had tremendous social change in this country. I mean, starting in about 1955 with the rise of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, you had you know the, the women's movement in the late 60s, you had the anti-Vietnam War movement, the environmental movement, gay and lesbian movement. All this stuff was going. And also, even for the non-political, there was sort of like a youth culture. And this was, this was uh, folks that were smoking dope, dropping acid, whatever like this. Um, but it was, a, 
it was a youth thing. I mean, you know, I think of a uh, of a, a trip I took across country. I um, it's, a, it's a long story. I won't tell you the whole thing, but basically, I left Eastern Washington, Walla Walla, Washington, with fifty cents in my pocket, and I went over to the coast to Portland, down San Francisco, L.A. Uh, got picked up in the middle of L.A. I'm hitchhiking. Got picked up a woman from my little town of Coolidge, Arizona. We had never lived there at the same time, but we knew all kinds of friends. Well, she had some peyote, and so we made a quick trip across the desert there. Real quick. Yeah. In 50 cents, you made it across the entire West Coast. Well, not well, only that. Now. I went across to Phoenix. I went uh, to Albuquerque. I went to Chicago. I partied for 10 days with a friend in Gary. I went to Fredericksburg, Virginia to see my cousins. I went down to Jacksonville, Florida, and then to Tallahassee, Florida, where I was going to school at Florida State, all on 50 cents. I never missed a meal. I smoked a lot. I was really happy. Uh, it was a good time. And this is, what, 73, 74? Yeah, 73. So, and, and never waited for more than 20 minutes outside, you know, uh, on the side of the road. Right. And a, v, a VW microbus was the greatest scene in the world, you know. And so we just, I mean, there was a, a sense of, of culture, of of. Uh, collective collectivity and and togetherness in a way that you guys had no idea because that collectivity scared the powers that be uh, i'm really convinced of that and so and I, the economy well yeah the yeah, economy that's, also that's but it was thing. that collectivity that was was real different and so the elites didn't want that they were scared because of what we did because remember I mean, there were two reasons the U.S. lost the war in Vietnam. First was the incredible bravery of the Vietnamese and their determination to suffer any cost to get independence and liberty. Uh, they, they wanted their, their freedom, and they, were, they paid for it. The U.S. killed something like 3.8 million Vietnamese. We wounded another 5.7 million. So if you add those up... And still know, wounding, still unexploded uh, ordinances oh, and uh, the, the cancers and all that stuff. It's Absol still, yeah, it's still following. It's a ghost. Oh yeah, absolutely. But, but uh, so, so their determination to, to expel the U S was, was paramount. The other thing that happened that people don't want to talk about really is the breakdown of the U S military. And what happened was it took a while, but particularly after Tet in 68, um, Soldiers and, and Marines started looking about what was going on, and they started thinking about this and learning about this and seeing how futile it was, and the military broke down. I mean, and part of it was racial. And I was um, going to say, you've got King was killed, Kennedy was killed, all in that time. Yeah, Bobby Kennedy. 68. Um, 68 he was killed in 68, and so was King, you're right. Um, and, and so part of it was racial, and we had entire entire units that would come out of the bush that would be disarmed because Marines were having firefights between whites and black Marines. Uh, it was pretty serious. There was a situation outside of Chulai that a uh, man I later worked with told me about where blacks were celebrating on the first anniversary of uh, Dr. King's assassination, and all of a sudden a whole, uh, a whole uh, I guess, a squadron of tanks drove up and surrounded the celebration. I mean, guys were just playing playing uh, volleyball and hanging out and drinking beer on the beach. Uh, so the racial stuff got was really intense, and that had a big impact through a fluke of, of on my life. 
But um, yeah, no, talk about that. Actually, I wanted to get into um, you became racially conscious when you were in the Marine Corps. Yeah, talk to yeah, like tell tell us that story because I think it's a good story. <laughs> okay, well. I had been trained as an avionics technician. I worked on communications and navigation equipment on uh, A-4 aircraft. They were small fighter bombers. Um, And on our base, we were training Marine pilots how to use bombing and gunnery. Remember, I was stationed in Yuma, Arizona, in the the States. Um, So anyway, um, I was trained on certain type of equipment, and... um, I wasn't, you know, I got knocked down because some senior, some guys with more seniority came in and they wanted to work on that particular piece of equipment. They put me on this old ancient thing with vacuum tubes and stuff that I'd never been trained on. And I I never could figure it out. So one night I threw a 75 pound radio up against a cement brick wall and they were realizing they had to do something different with me. (laughs) At that time, like I say, there was... There was only one Marine base in the world that hadn't had a, an outbreak of racial violence, and that being ours at Yuma. And the commanding general set up this uh, program he called the Human Relations Program, not to solve the problem, not to address the problem of white supremacy or racism, but to cover his ass in case anything jumped off, because <laughs> that would ruin an officer's career, right? So two black Marines, a gunnery sergeant and another, and another sergeant, uh, were there, and they just... and uh, so I went to work with them, and I don't know how I was chosen. I, if I'm getting real cynical, I was thinking that they wanted me to keep an eye on these guys. But uh, whatever the case, I walk into work the first day, and the gunnery sergeant hands me a literally a two-foot-tall st- stack of books of the most revolutionary black literature of the 60s. Die, nigger, die, soul on ice, blood in my eye, all kinds of shit. And he gives it to me, and he says, if you're going to be any good to us, you got to know what's going on with the young black Marine. So take these books, go back to your barracks. You read them. When you're ready to come back oh, to yeah. work, come on, and we'll get to it. Oh, yeah. And that literally changed awesome. my life. Because Do you remember that cat's name? Yeah, it's Gunnery Sergeant Thomas A. Robinson. Right on. Uh, Have you ever seen him since? I saw him one time. Um, that didn't work real well. I've never seen him since, unfortunately. But, man, it just profound effect on my life and uh so gunny rob sent me off to my barracks and i read this stuff and although i come from a very conservative white working class family in arizona uh, i was not raised racist so the small town i'm from coolidge had poor blacks and poor whites and poor native americans and poor mexicans and as far as i know we all got along well we went to each other's houses you know so it was a pretty diverse area then yeah my stepdad, for example, knew Ira Hayes, one of the Marines that raised the flag on, on Iwo Jima. Mm-hmm. Okay, now Ira died before I was born, so I, I didn't know, but my stepdad. So, it's a sad story. Yeah, that's, that is a sad story. But anyway, so I wasn't raised as a racist. So when I went and started reading this stuff, bam, it made sense to me. And so I came back, I read this stuff, I came back, and we spent 18 months... Uh, challenging white supremacy and racism in the Marine Corps. Uh, so, I mean, the, they were treating black Marines much worse than white Marines, which was against everything I'd been taught because we were taught there are no black Marines, no all white green. Marines. We were all green Marines. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard that round. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, so anyway, 
they were treating black Marines much worse. They were going out any screw up. Yep. Bam. They were on their ass. They're writing them up. They're putting in, putting them in, in jail, giving them bad papers, you know, bad discharges, stuff like that. But they were also screwing with young white Marines. So, like, if you got caught with the seed of marijuana in your car, you obviously had a drug problem, had to be thrown out, and stuff like this. It was really insane. So, most of our stuff was was around racial issues, but over time, we ended up working with a lot of white Marines, too, trying to keep their lives from getting screwed up. So, we did that for 18 months, um, and, you know, we were, this, is all my full, this was my full-time position. Uh, went from... <laughs> You know, was a was a corporal. I made sergeant for doing this. You know, but we were, I mean, we were called when anything came out. And perhaps right. to, to give you an idea of what happened, we had a situation. We had a a bus that uh, after hours took Marines into Yuma, into town. We call it Liberty Bus. Liberty, it was Liberty. Um, but <laughs> on the bus one day, a white Marine called a black Marine, used the N word, and. The black Marine got up and got in his face, and another white Marine stepped in to help his partner out. There was a struggle, and eventually the second white Marine got knocked out of the bus, got thrown out something, I'm not sure. But he hit the ground and was run over by a car following the bus and killed. Oh, Jesus. And so I got chosen to go to his unit oh, and boy. explain what happened. And so I went there. Now, these were guys, uh, they were a light anti-aircraft infantry battalion, or a missile battalion. So they were basically grunts. And uh, so I had to go and explain to what was going on, and they were not happy at what, what I told them. So I started getting death threats on the telephone and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, you got to keep in mind that we were all literally trained killers, and we had access to weapons. And people told me that I better watch out in the chow line. Well, I would put Life magazines. I don't know if you guys know them, but they were big uh, photojournalistic mm -hmm. magazines. I had to put those under my utility jacket. So in case I got hit, the chance of, you know, I wouldn't, wouldn't Somebody get trying to stab you. Yeah. yeah. Shank. Yeah. Unfortunately, nobody ever hit, hit on me, but, you know, it was still pretty intense times, you know. Yeah. But on the other hand, then then here's another story I like is is that uh, we had we were an air we were an air base we were uh, air wing group, and we had one of our squadrons had um, Phantom uh, F four Phantoms there, and they were having a lot of trouble in, of racial problems in the unit, and the commander Lieutenant Colonel wasn't taking care of it, so Gunny Rob called the called the commanding general and said, well, what do you want me to do and the generals told him, go ahead and uh, handle it. So he picked myself and, and Jim Collick, who, was, who had joined us. Uh, we're two 19-year-old corporals. And this lieutenant colonel had to meet with us and explain why he was screwing up, why he wasn't taking care of business in his unit. It was one of the great days of my life. <laughs> we were talking long shit after that one. Uh, but it was right. but it was really good but you know we also had things we were out of the chain of command i mean the marine corps has this real rigid chain of command and the general set us up out of it yeah so we would get people that would come in now we had a pretty good sense of what was going on in the base and they'd come in and so uh, i'm going to kill so and so he's a motherfucker blah 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 now we would generally know that he was a motherfucker and he needed to be straightened out but you know, killing somebody—that's a pretty big thing. So we had to, we had to, uh, 
weigh our conscience. Eventually, we went and reported every time, and a strange thing happened. Not a single one of these people that came in and threatened to kill somebody ever got locked up. Our conclusion, they were all uh, you know, criminal uh, investigation people coming in trying to trap us. Sure. So it was pretty heavy, you know, pretty heavy stuff for 18 months. It's a very unique story, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's not, I mean, I don't know how many, you know, maybe what, a handful, a dozen people maybe had a similar story to that. Perhaps, I don't even maybe know. Maybe even less. Yeah, I don't know. It was, it was an amazing experience. Why do you say 18 months? What was after the 18 months? After 18 months, they closed the program down in December of 72. Okay. Um, you know, what had happened? We'd... You were pretty much against the war, though, at that point. I became against the war. I was actually more against the Marine Corps seeing this shit because everything they told us, you know, had been proven a lie as far as how they treated blacks differently than whites. I saw there was no doubt about that, you know. So I would turn against the Marine Corps and then ultimately the war. And then somewhere in this process, I would guess, oh, last half of 72, the Pentagon Papers came out. Now, the Pentagon Papers were a top-secret study of the Vietnam War. It was initiated by um, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense. He wanted to understand how we got in this mess called Vietnam. And so they had access to all the reports, everything. And they brought together, the, they did this report for basically McNamara and the president, uh, who was uh, Nixon by that time. Uh, but uh, anyway... Uh, a former uh, a Marine colonel named Daniel Ellsberg, uh, who worked on this, copied this report. It was 7,500 pages. He made about 10 copies, apparently, all at night. And this you couldn't just put them in a stack and run them like today. This was page by page. And he got out, and he, turned, he, he gave it to the New York Times, and then later the Washington Post. If anybody's seen the movie The Post, this is about the post decision to go ahead and, and uh, publish right. um, took, took the emphasis off Ellsberg where it should have been and put it on Catherine Graham, but it's, that's what it's about. The long and short was it got out. New York Times published a copy of it in book form. I read this while I was on active duty, and I flipped out because what I learned is everything we had been, been told about Vietnam, I mean, every from, everything from A to Z, not only was a lie, but a conscious lie by our leaders. And it was in their own words, their own documents. It was unequivocal. You know? And I saw that and, and already sensitized to the unfairness, the insanity of the Marine Corps, you know, this transferred against the war. And, and so, yeah, by the end, by the end of, of uh, 72, I've turned totally around. And I'm just basically trying to hold on. I, I, had to, I, I was supposed to stay in until uh, July of 73. Um, so they sent me to a squadron, actually, where we had harassed them a lot about their racial problems. And I thought I was being set up, so I was really worried. But I'd made sergeant by that time. And, and in the air wing, by the time you make sergeant, they don't mess with you. you know? uh, you're, you're an NCO, but... They harass corporals, but they don't sergeants. I made sergeants, so I was okay there. Plus, uh, the head of the avionics department I was on at nighttime, he loved to spend his evenings at the staff NCO club. So basically, I ran the squadron and kept the planes flying. So they were happy with me awesome. and, and didn't bother me. And then, uh, and then in, in uh, April, April 15th, tax day, 
I got an early out to go to college. So I got out and, and went to Florida State. By the way, one thing I will say, um, at that time, somebody with an avionics uh, occupational strategy, MOS, uh, was getting like $7,500 cash if they would re-up for six years. Wow. I mean, they really wanted us, right? That yeah. was big money. Yeah, that is big days. money back then. Well, I was the only one on the base that I've ever heard of who was not given a reenlistment bonus, and I take that with great pride. <laughs> all right. All right. They didn't even bother. They are yeah. like, we don't want this guy here. Get yeah. him out of here. They didn't want me. I didn't want the them. It was matchmaking in heaven. I got the hell out. Why, uh, why, why uh, Florida State? Um, I had... Now, remember, I, I lived on Alcatraz. Right. So... And my stepdad before that had been a guard at the Arizona State Prison. So I had some familiar with the criminal justice system. Of course, reading the literature of the 60s, a lot of it was, a lot of, there's a lot of struggles, particularly by black convicts against the prison system. George Jackson, for example, the Soledad Three, you know, mm-hmm. a number of things. Then there was the Attica uprising somewhere in here. Um, so along the lines, I got the impression that, well, they just needed good people to work in the system and it would work. And so I decided to get a degree in criminology and thought I would go work in the prisons and reform them from within. I mean, mm-hmm. very self-inflated picture, my, you know, I, I admit. But that was the thinking. So Florida State had one of the finest uh, criminology programs in there. I got accepted, and I went there. As a, I was basically a third-quarter third sophomore by that time. I got about, oh... Over a year and a half at nighttime going to school in junior college near our base in Yuma. Mm-hmm. And so I went there, and uh, so I spent I, I spent that time, the summer of 73, while, while I was in Walla Walla, I told you about that road trip, I was working at the Washington State Prison in a prison reform project inside the walls and stuff like that. But what I learned was I didn't want to have anything anything to do with the criminal justice system, that it was not just. Right. Uh, as a as a judge in Detroit later later put it, it was the only working railroad in America. Right, and uh, I didn't want to have anything to do with it. I never worked within the system. Yeah, like that. Yeah, but I mean, you could see at that time you could kind of see the the beginnings of the all the shit that came after that. Yeah. I mean, just you know, millions and millions of young black people. Well, see that yeah, that happened starting I think seventy two, seventy three. Rockefeller passed his drug laws. And Nixon was war, you know, on the drugs. war on drugs and shit like that. I'm sorry. Well, the prison here, uh, Westville Prison, used to be a hospital that housed uh, around 2,500 people. In 1976, they turned it into a prison. Oh, really? I've never heard that. Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay. 1976. Yeah, they they had inpatient. I mean, it was a really great facility for uh, I think people with. Um, different mental illnesses and then they had a other wing but there was yeah they they were, they were housing around 2400 uh patients there wow i'd never heard so. that um let's uh i want to let <clears throat> we can go back to your story but i do want us to stop and i want us to talk about the comments that trump made so that way we can get to it because I, I, I want to keep going with your story, but I feel like yeah. we could, that will take us in so many different directions that we should probably at least talk about this. Well, it's like, okay, you're out of the Marine Corps. So you know what it means to have served, have served with other people. You know, you get out, you have these feelings about your service. 
um, that are, I'm sure, very conflicted. You meet people in there who change your life for the better. You know, you became politically conscious, but at the same time, you know, you're serving the military and the military is doing terrible things overseas. Right. So uh, I think it was about a week ago. I don't know, maybe two weeks ago now, Donald Trump, uh, there was a report that came out that Donald Trump had said all of these things. We're just this, we'll just assume that he had said these things. Oh, I have no um, doubt he did, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, a few years ago, he said that to, in the Atlantic interview, I think. Yeah, I mean, he, and then you, we all know what he said about John McCain and all yeah. this as well. So, I mean, I don't think anybody's surprised that he yeah. would say something like yeah. this. But, right. so he said this about veterans and then, you know, Kim had called me and had said, look, like I'm going to write an article about this and I would like to talk about this because, you know, there's going to be a certain way that the media portrays this. Yeah. And it's already been portrayed that way for the last couple of weeks. Uh, and it would be good, I think, for people to get an alternative view or three alternative views of kind of what, you know, how we process that. So, why don't you start, because I have to use the restroom, so I'm going to jump up and you guys can continue and I'll just come right back. But why don't you start with kind of what you were thinking, because I've talked to you about it and I also read the article that you sent off to the veteran. So, yeah, why don't you start by just giving us your thoughts, like when you heard it and then how you process that. Okay. Well, like I say, I was not surprised that he called veterans losers. I forget what else he called them, but it was all derogatory. And not surprising for a guy who had five deferments to keep out of the military, uh, you know, and one being for bone spurs, which was bullshit. And, uh, you know, so I, I say nothing good about Donald Trump. <clears throat> but also what I noticed, though, is that while he's putting people down, the response to him was very... Um, Oh, I'm, I'm, I can't think of the word right off the top. But it was very just sort of opposite. So Trump said the troops are bad. Everybody got on Facebook, yep. for example, that I saw and said troops are good. Yep. yep. Okay. And it was a dichotomy. That was the word I was looking for. It was a dichotomy. So Trump says troops are bad. Everybody else says troops are good. And I think we need more nuance Correct. To, to that. Okay. So I think first thing that we have to do, we have to separate... World War II out from the other wars. And the reason I say that is for, for Americans, uh, World War II was a necessity. We were attacked. People went and served. And yes, World War II gets called a good war. But in reality, like I say, it was, it was not, there's no good wars. But yet people felt they went there to protect their country, protect their loved ones and things like this and served, and some of them saw terrible, terrible action. A lot of them came back really uh, disturbed, like you were talking earlier, that, you know, people with PTSD, and we didn't know what PTSD was and stuff, and they never got to deal with this. But basically, you know, if there was a good war uh, in the 20th century, it was World War II. But yet we know the U.S. invaded the Philippines around the turn of the century, we sent troops to the Caribbean both before World War One and after. We sent troops to World, you know, to World War One. We had Korea. We had Vietnam. We had a, you know, we had Iraq. We had Afghanistan. We bombed all those fucking Grenada. Yeah, yeah, Grenada. Yeah. Also Panama. 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 Yeah. yeah. Uh, all these terrible things. Now, why I say we've got to differentiate 
World War II is that at least you could, you know, we were attacked. And so we, we certainly had the right to defend ourselves. Mm-hmm. In none of the other cases, absolutely zero, were we attacked. We went into these countries and we invaded and we killed people and we caused misery and things like this. And so I think we really have to distinguish between World War II and all the other wars. Okay. And so once you do that, you can say, all right, people went into the service and with, with good intentions or thinking they were serving the country because that's what they'd been told. But in reality, you know, people did some... People did some terrible things, even if they did them heroically. I guess I don't know how to put that. But in none of the cases, those wars were not justified. They were imperial invasions of these different countries and things like that. And so it's not just that the the troops were losers, but the thing was our whole country was a loser. The American people were lied to. We bought the bullshit. We promoted. Uh, well, not everybody. Well, not everybody, of course. But... Uh, but uh, well, just to give them some credit. Yeah, well, I mean... Largest de- demonstrations, right? Yeah, largest demonstrations ever before Iraq. Yeah. Before. I mean, in the only war that people had protested before it started. Yeah, yeah that's I mean, true. in that kind of a way. Yeah, that was something. But in general, right? these wars were seen as being good and blah, blah, blah. And there was no criticism of the troops because we were there out of noble purposes. And what I'm saying is the whole country was lied to. We, right. And, and so that we look at these wars very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we've got, to, we've got to understand that the elites in this country, which means including their front people in both the Democratic and Republican parties, have used, played us as fools to go do their dirty work around the world. But, and that, but, but we also had 9-11 happen. And this is just, you know, so that's... So just kind of incorporate that and how people perceive like automatically like within the span of few hours all of a sudden you have these terrorists who are you know and and it's funny because i'm thinking about liza featherstone too and it's like we were defending our the the way of our life like they attack not the united states but the democracy and the way of our life and you know and that that kind of thinking and obviously the media and the propaganda i mean i allow that to get pushed up a little bit in the psyche of people that you know these are the other who we have to go and like take out so we protect ourselves right it's just what is the date today uh september 13th 13th yeah i mean so it was just a couple days ago the anniversary 19th anniversary so i mean yeah that plays a significant role as you're saying world war ii it's for a certain generations i think by the time you get to our age Unless you had 9-11, I think it would be very difficult to tap into the 1980s and 90s kids with, like, some sense of World War II nostalgia. So then you have, like, Sergis saying 9-11, boom, you have this whole new wave of crazy patriotism. That you do, but you also have, remember, there was, it was absolutely crazy. I mean, people were uh, afraid of saying anything against it. I mean, it was right. it was sort of like a McCarthyist period for right after that it was very strong. You're right. I I tend to forget that, but but it was still another year before the U.S. Inv- uh, attacked Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and and Afghanistan is the country or its government did not attack us. It was Osama and his people, although they had trained in Afghanistan. That was the rationalization. 
So funded by the Saudis. We train them. And we train them, right? Yeah. 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 To oh, fight yeah. Soviets. Yeah. <laughs> and mostly Saudis and most yeah, of yeah. the money from Saudi or anyway. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can go off on Yeah, that we don't too. need to go off on a 9-11 one. But, um, yeah, no, go ahead. But, but, but um, so Afghanistan, attacking Afghanistan has a certain logic, if you will. I can, I can understand that to a certain extent. But not Iraq. Iraq no, and they knew. And just for the record, though, I mean, with Afghanistan, I mean, the point that Chomsky and the left made at the time was because it was such a poor country, they knew that all of the, the projections, even within the Defense Department um, and even within the Pentagon, had projected that if you do this, what this will do is catapult this country into the Stone Age because they're so poor and they have such a lack of access to health care and food. Oh, yeah. And the economy is so shot that if you do do this, this is the, the result will be what you have today, which is, you know, rise in extremist groups and groups relying on black market and drug dealing to, you know, oh, yeah. to make a living. Well, see, uh, you're, you're absolutely right. And in Instead fact, of just dealing with it like a police action, you right. know, like the FBI would, like, you know, okay, investigate. investigate who did this, where the money come from, track them down. Not a, a quote unquote military action. Yeah, no, you're right. But but then uh, Iraq comes in, and yeah. Iraq is completely fucked up. There's no excuse. Yeah. Rumsfeld said at one point that, uh, well, we don't have, we can't, we can't bomb enough rocks in, in Afghanistan. We got to have real targets. Mm-hmm. And this was part of the thing of shifting to Iraq. Now, we were told an amazing amount of lies about that. I mean, first of all, it was the obvious weapons of mass destruction, which turned out there were zero. Um, but also that Saddam Hussein was implicit in 9-11, so coming right. back to that. When in reality, uh, Saddam, Saddam Hussein was an opponent of Osama bin Laden and yep. would not let his people operate in Iraq. Right. The virulent opponent. The third thing was there was a story that uh, that uh, Iraq was trying to get enriched uranium, the yellow cake from Niger. Right. And this is Valerie Plame's husband. I forget his name, but he he exposed that before the war, and then she got out. It turned out she was a CIA Scooter agent. Libby. Yeah, all this stuff. So the whole Iraq thing was a lie. And then it turns out, then when when that came out, Bush said, "Well, we were there to we were there to help the Iraqi people." But what also? Well, it changed from well, it went from weapons of mass destruction, yeah, to connections with Al Qaeda, to then we had to stop terrorism because terrorism was there, the insurgency. To then, when they could find a way to justify the insurgency, it turned into we're going to create a democracy in Iraq, which is going to be. You know, now we're going to have elections. That that that. that. Well, because he was killing his own population, so he was killing right. the you know doing massacres in the north with the Kurds, and then in the south and on the Jaff with the um, with uh, the uh, river people. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> no, you're right. But in there was also a thing that said, "Well, we're going to we're going to do this to help the Iraqi people." Well, yeah. Uh, and the thing is, what. What uh, came out later was that Saddam Hussein had been on the CIA's payroll from 1958 to 1991. He was our boy. That never got out to the American people either. So everything about Iraq, and remember, we were going to set up 11 permanent military bases in Iraq. That was the goal. Joe Biden wanted to turn it into three countries. (laughs) I know. I'm just saying. (laughs) 
<laughs> Makes sense. It was his suggestion <laughs> during the uh, yeah. 2007 uh, Democratic primaries. His suggestion was to turn it into three different ethnic states. But, I mean, now we're getting into you guys' territory. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, but but anyway, I guess the point I, I want to make about about Trump, uh, I'll, you know, we can we can modify here or there. Yeah, yeah. But the but the basic idea was that these wars were not wars to defend the United States. They were. So we have no problem with people being draft dodgers. So just <laughs> yeah. you could be a draft dodger, just don't be a hypocrite yeah. and turn around and then send other people to war, other other people's kids to wars, or bang the war drums for other wars to be started. And bingo, bingo. You know, because I mean that because that gets conflated with all of this too. People say, oh. You know, Trump's a fucking draft dodger, da 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 Yeah, but they don't add that, you know, that's okay if you're not going to be a hypocrite about it. Like, you know, we, we would encourage people to avoid fighting in uh, illegal and immoral, exactly. unjust wars. Exactly. But see, the, and, and certainly those that, that resisted the draft during the 60s and early 70s, uh, many of them turned not only against the war and against the draft, but they, they mobilized people against it. It was not just their individual save my ass type of thing. Right. Trump's was just that. I mean, he was a rich kid. <laughs> I mean, somebody gets handed $400, uh, $400 million when they're eight years old. You know, that's not, not anybody <laughs> in my neighborhood. Let's put it that way. You know. And by the way, I don't know if you guys heard this, but just today it came out that uh, when Trump showed up at his, at his rally in, in Michigan the last couple of days, somebody played Fortunate Son, the, uh, the great... Clear, Creedence Clearwater song against, against these rich fuckers dodging the draft. They played that at his rally, and apparently nobody got it. Well, but no, I, I, yeah. I mean, I, had, I have absolutely nothing but great respect for people that avoided the draft, fought against it, mobilized it, tried to end it, so nobody went. And that's what a lot of people don't realize is that the anti-war movement was not basically just saying, screw you people. It's a, we don't want you at risk. We don't want you there to kill people. We don't want you to be killed. We want you home. We want you safe. We want to protect you. And the right wing is, has lied about that all these years and said, no, they were, just, they were just hippies and they didn't care. Well, it was because they cared that they fought so hard to try to end that war. Mm -hmm. So I want to keep that in mind. But Trump, like I say, he had five deferments. Uh, he was a man who was playing. Uh, he, he was at some military prep school and was playing sports and stuff like that. Uh, you know, he should have gone. He, who he reminds me of is Sylvester Stallone. Now, this great, this, this is a good one. Stallone, you know, this great he-man, you know, this real pro veteran, blah, blah, blah. You know, he got, he got drafted and uh, showed up and got classified as 4F, physically unable to, to serve. He went to Switzerland and worked in an all-girls prep school making softcore porn movies during the war. <laughs> and then, on top of that, awesome. never gave any of his money that he made from, you know, First Blood and all that other crap. Right. Never gave it to any vets organizations, as far as I know, or whatever. Of course. A real hero. Oh, yeah. Real one. <laughs> So I mean, you know, he, Jesus. both Trump and Stallone, you right. know, these are the, these people that are pro-war. But we'll send others to go fight wars and let them get the medals and stuff like that. But we ain't putting our asses on the line, right? 
and I think it's disgusting. Well, on a dangerous aspect of it as well is that it kind of reminds me of the uh, the incident when it was with the Comey, the FBI director. Mm-hmm. So you have these things come out, and so now you have these generals are put on the pedestal because they're speaking out against them, and it kind of dilutes the whole you know the whole act of. You know, like FBI, oh, call me such a great uh, you know, patriot, you know, but yeah. we, we don't, you know, let's not talk about what the FBI did or is doing. And it's kind of the same thing with this. And it's obviously the, it, and, and that's the thing with Trump being able to like throw that out and, you know, and the media, in, in, media being incapable of um, present it in a very complex way and say you know just kind of no we don't want people drafted like we don't i don't want anyone to go and fight illegal wars right but let's talk about this or let's talk about that and now you know and now you have this the the dichotomy that you were talking uh, in the beginning i also see that dichotomy kind of between the generals and the soldiers kind of thing too it's like generals now are, are lifted up and they're like they're the great heroes who are standing up against trump and they're saying like hey we're you know we're we're a good force and things like that and no they, these bastards were the ones that, that led correct. the troops in there and of course generals don't die in wars i mean that's a screw up when that happens yeah. <laughs> yeah, they send them. They send Not them seventeen, days. eighteen year old, nineteen year old Correct. enlisted people to go do all the nasty stuff, and then they come home, and then everybody says, "Oh, you've got all that fruit salad on your jacket. You must be really cool." Well, you know? I think there's a. I mean, I think the thing is, is that there's a number of reasons why um, people join the military. I mean, we all know, right? I mean, there's people who join the military. Because they're poor, there's people who need education, there's people who just knocked up a, a young woman and they need health care and their kid's going to get born. There's people who are super patriotic. Now, going back to 9-11, I think for Sergio and I, yeah. in, our, in our experience, there was an inordinate a number of people who I would say they fall into sort of three major categories. Disproportionately people who joined after 9-11 because they were all pumped up and wanted to get revenge and all that right. tied in with number one would be number two, which is some level of revenge, less about patriotism and country and more about like being young and giving, a, getting a license to go overseas and kill Muslims, you know, as your terrorists, you know, which was synonymous with Muslim back in those days. So it was like, I think that those are the two main ones. And then of course, you know, we did have people who joined because they came from, you know, poor backgrounds, but you're talking still 2001, 2002. It's not that the economy is just booming and wonderful, but it's definitely not what it's been post-2008. So, you know, yeah, there's people joining because they're poor, but there's a disproportionate number of people, at least, you know, as in my recollection. I mean, Serge can, you know, talk about what he recalls, but I mean, that's what, you know, in our experience, because of that 9-11 thing, you know, that little thing that happened there, <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, there was a lot of people who joined because of that. So we had a lot of, like, you know, in and all volunteer military. We had a lot of, like, go-getters, you know, real, they thought, patriotic type of people who joined because they believed in God country and they attacked our freedoms and all that. Right. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I waited for six months to get into uh, infantry position just to go to boot camp because they were so fooled up. 
filled really? up. Oh yeah. I, Cause I, I, that's what I wanted to do. And I went to the recruiter and he was like, Hey man, he's like, I, I can't get you in until May. Cause it's packed. Everybody wants to go on the infantry. They're like, you should go on mechanic. We need mechanics. I was a dumbass. I should have went that way. <laughs> and you know, and then obviously being in the, uh, immigrant community as well. So you oh, have yeah. these pressures of, Oh man, like they attacked us and you know, in the Soviet Union, obviously you have this a little background with Afghanistan and you know, this whole thing of Chechnya and all these terrorist attacks and, uh, post Soviet countries and shit. I had friends who were, you know, I mean, uh, Ukrainian, Russian diasporas, other diasporas are mm-hmm. predominantly, a lot of them are Jewish, uh, from Jewish backgrounds. And shit, I had friends who were asking me to join the Israeli forces to go mm. fight in <laughs> Palestine, man. <laughs> I was like, I don't know about that, but uh, <laughs> definitely going to, you know, uh, definitely wow. going to join this. And obviously, and I think the economic uh, aspects of it as well. So like everything together tied in. And I yeah. think tied in with that for the immigrants are, are wanting to prove that you're Correct. real Americans. And Correct. Yeah, that stuff, yeah. Yeah, repay the country yeah. that's given you so much and all that type of thing. For sure. I mean, we heard it from people all the time. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I, you know, when I, when I heard it, I was actually going to write an article. I didn't know what I was going to title the article because that's oftentimes how I end up starting an article. I actually just start with a title and a concept and then just go from there. And... I was thinking something like, yeah, like I, I am a loser, but not as much of a loser as Donald Trump or something. <laughs> it was just basically like a thing where it's like, I don't know, loser's the wrong word. But no, in some ways, I think that what we have to recognize, I think it would be really healthy for veterans to recognize, would be that a, a large part of why so many veterans are killing themselves is because they actually do regret what they did. Right. So... I think there's a sense that we have been suckered, you know, and I think that is the breaking point for a lot of veterans beyond just the trauma, beyond the killing and the the death and all of the horrific experiences of war. Uh, I think a big part of it combined with that is that you then come home, obviously, and you go, man, it wasn't worth it. What the hell did we do? It was for nothing. It was for oil companies. It was for this. It was for that. And with Iraq and Afghanistan... It's pretty obvious now, 19 years after Afghanistan, um, 16 years after the war in, or 17 years after the war in Iraq started. I mean, most vets, I think, even if they don't want to admit it out loud from those wars, see what's going on and they go, my God, what the fuck was this for? And the polls, polls also show that. Yeah. Yeah, the polls, polls do show that. Military Military Times polls show over and over again that yep. the majority of veterans who served in Iraq and Afghanistan are they either question it, are critical of it, or they want us out for the most part. Well, the you know, the other thing is that when you can no longer kill, whether you're wounded or you smarten up and you say no more, whatever, you're of no use to the US military. Right. And they they just throw you out. And they don't care about you. They don't make sure you're mentally together. They don't make sure anything else. I mean, they send you off to the VA, and the VA seems to do a fairly good job as far as physical injuries. Mental injuries seem to be really variations between the different facilities. But a lot better than it used to yeah. be. 
way. And yeah, I mean, way better, like a, like markedly different. But it than only what it was. started in the eighties due to the veterans fighting to get PTSD, post traumatic right. stress disorder, yeah. to actually be qualified as instead of shell shock or things like that. Right. And you know, I mean, when we got out in two thousand six, I remember. Yeah, it was pretty rough because they were still trying to, you know, this these huge waves of veterans are coming back, and they're trying to figure these things out and. Uh, it definitely got better. It definitely got better. And obviously, it all relies on the funding as well. So is there funding? And so it, it is a good point. It's like, yeah, we're like, you're a loser. So you you join for these reasons that we've stated because, you know, because our communities might not have those things or or maybe because the you, you grew up or the media made it perceived like you're a patriot and that you have to do it. Then you come back. And so you already lost your humanity. You know, you 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 were trained to dehumanize anyone who is not part of you uh, or coming from your background. Then you come back and you lose your humanity. Then you, I mean, I remember me when I moved to Texas, I literally waited for what? We waited for four months to get, uh, I applied, we applied to like 12 different jobs and it took four months to get a job at Lowe's. You know, and that was the only place that called, you know, they called me back. So you're losing there and then, you know, the whole process. But I also want to think about the, the term itself, loser. I mean, I think we, we tend to perceive it very negatively. But in reality, being a loser, and maybe it's something that I can definitely relate to myself, being that loser, it helped me. When you lose, you either learn from your from the mistakes or you don't learn from them and i think that for me being that loser and being able to find different um, outlets when i got back it helped me to kind of understand that i was a loser and that i was used um and that i i personally need to do something as part of this collective to prevent people from uh, losing things or being losers. And so, I mean, I also think that sometimes we should look at the term itself and kind of get a little bit deeper and be like, well, are you going to learn from it? You know, I mean, obviously I wish, you know, all these 22 or 24 veterans that kill themselves every 24 hours, I wish they would have been able to learn from those mistakes and maybe instead of doing that, concentrate or divert their uh, negative or whatever experiences into something positive, you know. But but you had the advantage, uh, I mean, at least at some point, of joining up with IVAW, being with other vets. Uh, you you were welcome back. I mean, you were you know I was I was part of that since I'm a member of Viet, Vietnam Veterans Against the War, the uh, the original VVAW. Mm-hmm. You know. We welcomed you back. You guys got support mainly from your own uh, comrades, uh, and it helped you, and you had at least some sort of a community. And I think a lot of these people that kill themselves, Vince was talking about this earlier, but I think a lot of these people that kill themselves feel real isolated. They don't have that. Uh, There's no way. Plus supportive family structures. Yeah. Yeah, Plus friendships. I mean, there's a whole, when you start adding it up, I mean, it's the same thing we're dealing with in the broader society right now you know where i think a lot of white people are understanding just how hard up it is to be a black person to the degree that a white person can't understand that right 
that's going on in this country right now. You know, there's a number of people in the country who are kind of questioning like whether it's a whole different episode and we don't have to get into it. But the point is, is that there are millions of white people sitting at home going, wow, what is, what is it like to be a black person in this country? I mean, I've done that with just the veterans. I mean, in hindsight, years later, you know, now thinking about it and even having this conversation where I start adding up all of the benefits that I've had um, that other people might not have enjoyed. And I know a lot of people haven't because we've met a lot of veterans over the years and they've shared their stories with us. But I think the problem with the language is that it's Donald Trump. So it's like the problem is, is that if that guy says it, like people are just like, oh, loser, like you're the loser, motherfucker. And And I think that attitude is good because he's such a just terrible human being that I think people are just, you know, that the immediate knee jerk reaction is understandable. The knee jerk reaction to then catapult veterans to like the best, the hero status is not helpful. And in fact, I mean, it's actually the way to look at this for people who are listening is that, you know, it's also not helpful if you want to keep these veterans alive. And a part of why they're killing themselves, of course, is because they're coming home realizing they were not, in fact, heroes, uh, that they might have been the bad guys in this situation. And so the more they're told that they're heroes and the more that that totally conflicts with their own experiences in the war or how they're feeling about themselves or how they're reflecting on those experiences, it's even that much more jarring for them. So it's not even just a political point. It's beyond a political point. It's like if you actually want to help people, you stop vaulting them into the status of, of, of being a hero and it takes a little bit of that pressure off. And, you know, because a lot of guys come home and, and, and women as well who come home. I say guys all the time. I'll keep qualifying this as we, as we do these episodes because we served with just like all men. I mean, I didn't have any women around me the whole time I was in the military. So in any case, you know, these guys come home and their family's patting them on the back. You know, their family's saying, hey, Kim, you know, man, you did the right thing. Thanks for keeping us safe. You know, you're a real hero. And, you know, people who are young don't remember this. And I think people who the during that time, it didn't mean maybe quite as much to them. But I vividly remember coming home from the war. And during those latter Bush years, there were still people buying you uh, dinners and drinks. And I'd be home on leave and people would see my USMC tattoo or they would see a t-shirt or they would figure it out somehow right. and they would buy you drinks or buy you dinner or come up and thank you. I mean, there was this whole weird thing going on where, you know, that had seeped in that what you mentioned earlier, Kim, all that post nine 11 propaganda yep. it seeped in so deep that, you know, by the time guys were getting home after those, that first few rounds of tours, you know, Oh three through Oh six and seven. And there was the heaviest combat of the entire war took place during that time. Right. And these guys are coming home and, it, you know, fuck, man. I mean, they're dealing with all these people thanking them and they're walking around going, the fuck are these people thanking me for? I mean, what did we do? We killed innocent people. Now, to be fair, too, this is another thing. Two things I wanted to mention okay. that you guys could wrap on, too, is one, most people join the military for good reasons. In other words, if you were to line up 100 people who joined the U.S. military, it would not be that the majority of the people who join the U.S. military are like, I'm joining because I want to go kill people. That's right. not, to your point, skills, jobs, mechanic, aircraft mechanic. I mean, there's people go there because of education, all mm-hmm. kinds of reasons. So I think that's one thing. 
I think, it, you know, it'd be good for anti-war left, I think, to just keep that in mind. Not that they don't, but I do think that there's a certain, it's not the whole baby killer thing. These days, it's more of like, oh, you dumb motherfucker, like you joined the military, like, and I think that's not helpful. Right. And I think the more the left does that, the more they take themselves out of that mindset of, well, where would a poor working class person be coming from who'd want to join the military? So I think that's one thing. Just keep in mind, everybody, that majority of people who join, they join for decent reasons however misguided that may be or whatever. And sometimes it's just out of straight necessity. Yeah. Um, and I think the other part of this is, you know, it's really tough for people, I think, in this country to think about what's happening overseas because there's no connection there. Um, and, I mean, that's not really the one I want us to wrap on. I mean, we could wrap on the fact that most people join for good reasons. And the other thing is not everybody's experience is the same. Oh, yeah. So there's a lot of people. I think this was a mistake that groups like IVAW might have made. <clears throat> I think this was a mistake that some of the anti-war movement made. And that was relying a little too much on personal narratives and personal stories because for every Sergio and, and, and Vince that you can find or Kim... You can find three other Marines or and or soldiers or whatever, and some of them might, might be bullshitting. Like some of them might not be telling the truth about their service. They might right. just be glossing over all the terrible things that they don't want to remember. But the truth of the matter is, I do know a lot of Iraq veterans who didn't really do anything nasty. I mean, I know Iraq veterans who did actually paint schools. I know Iraq veterans who did build bridges. Like I know Iraq veterans who helped put together portions of the infrastructure that the of course IEDs. we helped to destroy but <laughs> or helped clear IEDs These for local for population us, you know, or for us I mean uh, yeah. there's a lot of marines who did a lot of a lot of stuff there I mean there's a lot of more so uh, soldiers you know that did stuff over there because the marines have such a more specific you know, mission, which is just to destroy shit. But the army also, I mean, there's a lot of cats out there that had a lot of different experiences. And I think that's important to keep in mind. And I've been thinking about that more and more as time has gone on because I posted something to Facebook for nine 11 and it got a lot of play. It got passed all over the place. And I got a lot of messages from people, some of whom were goofy, but a lot from guys who were just kind of on that, in that weird space where they're like, I'm a, I get what you're saying, and I agree with a lot of it, but I still kind of am proud of that I did this thing. And uh -huh. and I think at its core, and, and this is something I think is really important, but I think at its core, it's one of the few things left in our society in the U.S. that is, an act, that is nominally a collective project. That in such a neoliberal society where everybody's told, look out for yourself, start a business, fuck your neighbor, just worry about you and your own, make right. money, buy shit. I've been in recollecting on this now that we're out of the Bush era and the Obama era. Not that these wars have gone away, but they have died down compared to their what they were at their height, Libya, Syria, etc. Yeah. Um, I... It, I it's not that I've been excusing it. It's just that I can understand that why people do it, number one. And I've been cutting way more slack to people who do it now because in this context of everything being about me, 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 it's still one of the few things where like you listen to these kids who join and right. they're saying the, all the things that you would want people to say about joining a union 
or joining a fucking community organization. They're like, I really want to do stuff. In fact, these parents, they donated to Park. Um, these parents from Seattle had me talk to their son. Okay. He, he's in college. He's extremely smart. Uh, he speaks Arabic. Of course, the military wants him. Oh, yeah. Um, and he's extremely bright. I'm talking to him on the phone and he's talking about U.S. imperialism, but he's talking about why. What happens if nobody decent is in on the inside of these institutions? Do we just get Donald Trumps, and do we just get these kind of really, you know, bogus morons? It was a nuanced. It was not some kid who, like the ones I talked to or we remember during the Bush era, who were like, "I'm joining to go kill terrorists," or "I'm gonna, you know, USA type shit." It was a very nuanced, like, and he mentioned that all of his friends in college. We're only worried about getting out and making money and that he just wanted to be a part of something that meant more than just doing something for himself. And I think that's just a huge thing. I think, you know, anyway, I don't know if you guys also pick up on that, but I mean, that's like a big, I, I think that's a big difference, you know. Well, it's one of the reasons why a lot of veterans, when they get out, they join bike gangs, they join different right. just groups or whatever. I mean, it, well, I, that's going deeper into like this whole human thing and being part of something. And so yep. when you're in society, I mean, I, I kind of, you know, when you're in society and you have this breakdown of communities and collective uh, just psyche or whatever, just knowing that you're in part of this collective uh part of this collective community um yeah i mean you that's important yeah it's it's extreme well it's it's important for our health it's important for for everything just to be to be accepted to be part of something to be with people and not to be alone i mean that's why we're all depressed and you know all kind of, i mean obviously different reasons for it but nonetheless like this human interaction is extremely important yeah. and personally yeah i mean i remember when um shifting a little bit but it kind of connected when the soviet union collapsed and all these social programs start collapsing i remember like going and actually searching for places where i can be with a bunch of people so whether it's going to uh, this agricultural sectors with kids who were on um uh, what's it called? Uh, probation from right. the police, you yeah. know, and like forcing this uh, probation officer to get me in there. He's like, "All right, well, you don't have, you're, you don't have any criminal record." I'm like, "Well, I was like, if you don't let me in, I'll have one." <laughs> <laughs> so you know, he's like, you know, because I mean, they're kids from ages from 10 to 18, 19, right. you know. And I went there, and it was incredible experience just being there. So like, there's this craving just to be around people, and yeah, I mean, I can I can definitely see that that. You, you you tired of this like oh everybody's for for themselves but i just want to be part of this something bigger and that's how it's presented right yeah well the yeah. thing is i mean yes to what you're saying but also remember as far as i can tell there's never been a recruiter that's told kids what the purpose of the military is right you you know you're going to be there you're going to protect our country god motherhood apple pie blah 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 I don't, I've never heard of a recruiter say, well, what's the purpose of Marine Corps? What's to kill and destroy? Right. I mean, you know. Yeah, they dress it up as everything now. Yeah. And it's, and it's oh, come, we've got great education programs. We've got that, 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 Right. Yes, but you, anybody that goes in, and particularly the Marine Corps, you know, will get trained to kill and destroy, period. It's, 
<laughs> it's part of the project. Well, it's a weird contradiction because on the one end, this is why, like now we don't have, we're engaged in many different conflicts and we're expanding in Africa. We have been for years. I mean, we know that. I think a lot of people who are listening to this will know that. Excuse me. And if they don't, it's something we'll talk about in the future anyway. But they have died down significantly from what they were. So I think we're also, again, in this period, probably much like the late 70s, early 80s, where, yes, you have a new, you have a new boss in Trump. Yes, the, bombing, the bombings and the drone strikes have increased under Trump, which we don't talk about. The Intercept's done some great reporting on this. Right. Um, but the use of mechanized forces has not increased at all. And in fact, he's been pulling some of those forces out of places, or at least attempting to, and being blocked by some of the Democrats. <laughs> Um, and also some of the neocons within, within his own party. Now, yeah. um, I think it's a dangerous period because I think we can also be entering that period where people lose track of the fact that we do go there to kill people. And that was very clear during the Bush era because people were seeing some of this and they were like, you know, so some of the critique, even though they weren't seeing enough of the dead bodies, even though they weren't seeing enough of the combat that was going on, there was at least a sense of like, Oh, my God. I mean, Michael Moore's film, Fahrenheit 9-11, there's a whole bunch of films that started to come out where people were going, and some of that on-the-ground reporting, Darja Mail, Christian right. Parenti, people who were there, Patrick Coburn, uh, Robert Fisk, people who were there yeah. going, hey, guys, here's what's actually going on, massacres, killing of innocent civilians, torture, boom, the, fo uh, the photographs from Abu Ghraib come out. I mean, there's a whole number of things that came out where people go, holy shit, this is what the military is. It's not about democracy and apple pie and all this wonderful shit. It's when you put a bunch of young people together in this kind of an insular culture and institution with very little rules or guidelines for how you're supposed to behave in these situations. It's like you would think there would be a ton of guidelines, but I mean one of the things that's so wonderful in Stone's book is that he just talks about how much of a unorganized disaster most of the military is and how most of the things that unfold are just chaotic it's not like well trained well disciplined whatever it's just like a fucking mess all the time and that's just really important to keep in mind because people see the military people who aren't in the military perceive <laughs> the military as being like this machine that's like just can get anything done whenever right. it wants and and on command and it's like yeah. oh my god you need to <laughs> spend some time <laughs> and the transition now too right we're we're using drones, we're right. automating things, and now you're shifting the basic, like the infantry units are starting to get more specialized and kind of like special for special operation or capable SOC, like special operation, you know, and people who go there, I mean, pretty motivated. So, yeah. you know, all those, all those things changing up and shifting, you know, how that's, how that's gonna, you know. Well, even more dangerous because at the, uh, Part of that whole process that's happening now is you've got um, more and more funding of militia groups because we're not using so many of our own troops in places like, you know, in Africa, uh, through AFRICOM and through, you know, in Afghanistan, Syria, Libya. We still want a presence in all of these places, but we don't want our people there. And we're not, so we're using private contractors, special right, forces right. groups, but we're also now paying out money and providing resources to any number of different militias and or state forces government forces in any number of countries which in the end is even more dangerous because you know you're now arming and training all of these different entities that you don't have any real direct control over oh no 
I'll I mean, I think that's that's just that's oh, going to end up. I mean, we've seen it with Blackwater, right? Um, you know, we're going to see that more and more as these as these forces get there. I mean, you know, when you're in you know a shitty situation, you do whatever you you know. The first rule is to survive and to bring your buddies home with you, right? And anything's game. And if the count by if the body counts are low and you're not losing as many soldiers then you know i mean what kind of are you are you going to get much resistance from the you know people back home right as well that's the key with these uh the robots yep. yeah, that's the key they're reducing yep. the they're reducing the american casualties yep. yeah there yeah. was a great interview that um brett wilkins did for collective 20 with a nobel peace prize uh winner i forget her name damn it but she writes about this these robot or, you know, these drones and killer robots is what she calls them. Uh-huh. It's a great interview. I mean, she's just sound, she, like uh, Stephen Hawking and Chomsky and a bunch of others who are sounding the alarm about AI, it's like the, the, the combination of the two, you know, and that's, they're really worried about it because there's no set of international standards or norms. There's no legal apparatuses or mechanisms that are in place to deal with something like this. We don't, it simply doesn't exist. So, Right. Not only do we not have a legal framework to deal with it, but people aren't being told how quickly this is happening and how much this is. They're already being deployed at such a greater extent than they were two years ago, four years ago, ten years ago. I remember when Bush launched the first drone strike outside of Iraq and Syria. Uh, that was towards the last. That was in the last year of his uh, administration, and he launched a drone uh, missile over uh, the Syrian border to go after wow. militants. And I just remember thinking then, one of the people you actually know him, uh, Jablonski, Jablowski? Yeah. Jablon? Howard Jablon? Jablon? Howard Jablon. I don't know why I want to add the ski at the end. Um, sorry, Howard, I don't know if you're Polish or not, but I, <laughs> I definitely wanted to make you Polish. Um, <laughs> you know, Jablon was one of the first people who told me when I was going to school at PNC, he was like, Vince, this is going to spread all over. He goes, not even, he goes, don't think of it politically or ideologically, or materially. He's like, think of it just geographically. Yep. He's like, think of Vietnam geographically. He's like, think of it strictly as like a war strategy. He's like, where? okay, can you lock down all of the borders? Where are people coming from? He goes, next thing you know, this is going to be in Syria. This is getting, he was right about that, and other people could see that too, but he was one of the first that just told me from a sheer like geographical perspective, you can see how this is going to unfold because I was telling him where we were located during the second time the unit was deployed, right, which is right on the border with Syria. Yeah. The other thing, though, you also got to keep in mind is these drones. Where are these drones being controlled from? They're mm. being controlled from Las Vegas. Well, we had right outside of Las Vegas for a bunch of them, and I'm sure there's other bases, but I know definitely this one in in, in Vegas. So it's this really weird situation. I mean, first of all, that you can literally target and kill somebody on the other side of the world in real time, you know, but that, you know, four o'clock come, it's time to get off work. Let's go home. Let's go see this. Hi, honey, you know, oh, hi, kids, you know, and, and it's, you're just. That higher rates than uh, Amy Goodman reported yep. that they actually have higher rates of suicide so, than yep. infantry PTSD soldiers. as well. Wow. Well, yeah. again, it's this it's this hyper individualism. Yeah, it's de, de, de so dehumanizing yeah. and alienating that you're in that little box controlling that little machine, and then you see what it does, but you don't really see or feel it. I mean, that's right that's away. even more of that's a mind crazy. fuck. And then you're probably watching your kids play video games. And no, I mean it's dangerous. The 
the next step, though, of course, the warning is that the next step is that you won't need that operator. The right. next step is that this motherfucking thing will just go it's and make its own decisions and will be reprogrammed to kill when it can kill, when it can't kill. Now, see, this brings us to a whole different thing that we've got to talk about. It's, I mean, you've been writing about it, I have been writing about it, I think Serge has as well, but the whole concept of empire. Mm-hmm. And this is, to me, this is a crucial idea that we've got to get to the American people, is we think of the United States as just a individual country, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, in reality, the United States has tried to dominate the world since 1945. Um, and that either either through invasion and occupation or through, you know, more uh, discreet manners that we're able to economically or politically control these countries. And so what we're doing is we're devoting tremendous amounts of resources not to protect the United States as a as a geographical country but to expand the power and the domination of the u.s uh u.s empire you know and so one of the things that's going on and we see this i think very clearly you know as we see social services defunded and stuff like that is they're even taking resources away that should go to the american public that they're telling us we've we're, you're paying taxes to provide these services and stuff. That money's being taken away and it's being thrown to the military. Fifty three cents on every discretionary federal dollar. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I here's the thing though, Kim. I think that one of the things that I, that would be helpful, I think, for us, um, for people to do, mm-hmm. and and for people who are writing and thinking about the empire, I one of the reasons why. I did enjoy, and I know we've talked about his work in the past, and we've had him on the program for an interview. Michael Hart's one of them. I actually just ordered a book from a, a woman in England. I'm going to forget her name, but she writes about empire as well, and she, she's writing about different empires and how they function differently. So right. she's writing about the Roman Empire as an empire of land. Right. She's writing about the um, British Empire as an empire of like colonies. Right, And then she's writing about the American empire as an empire that's essentially facilitating and protecting capital, trade, uh-huh. trade agreements, et cetera, et cetera. And what's interesting to me today is how, because, and this is an interesting contradiction with Donald Trump. I mean, Trump throws a wrench in the gears in a way that is unintended. And the one, in one hand, he does everything that the elites would want him to do, cut taxes, cut regulations, but he's too bombastic and he's, he's so offensive and, and he's so ideologically incoherent yeah. that he has created serious trouble between us and some of our allies. Mm-hmm. Um, and people just assume, I think there's this assumption on the left, a couple things, I'll just end with this. I think there's an assumption on the left that nation states are dead. And I think that is, I think people need to really rethink that because I think that's coming back in a real way. And I think we've seen it in the last four years with Bolsonaro, with Modi, with Trump. I mean, we can go on and on with these right, yeah, yeah, with all these right-wing groups or right-wing leaders leaders who've come to power. So I think that's one thing that's important to keep in mind is just that the nation state's not going anywhere. And I think the other thing to keep in mind is that it's not a for sure thing that the U.S. will just continue to keep the kind of hegemonic power that it has. Oh, and I, I think I that, totally agree I that. think there's a, 
I think there's a belief on the left among some that the U.S. empire is powerful enough to kind of get what it wants, even if it doesn't get what it wants, that it's just going to be the U. Oh, well, I guess something to add to that, and this is something I talk about with people overseas that I think is an issue because some of them are rooting for uh, the fall of U.S. empire, is that I think it's it would be good for people to think about U.S. empire, as our friend Derek puts it, um, as a house that you want to demolish and that you want to choose how you, you got two choices. We either do a uh, demolition that's planned or you just let this house fall and you don't want to let it fall. Like, so I think the issue with us empire is that unless we, unless there's something to fill that gap, the power gap on a global scale. uh, In other words, we see the benefits of things that have happened in China. uh, But we also see another side of what's happening in China that we don't necessarily want the Chinese state and what it has created to be the hegemonic dominant force in the world sort of projecting its power. Um, but we also don't want this belligerent United States to do so. We don't want a Europe that you know puts austerity on people, still exploits all their former colonial powers to the extent that they can, or colonial uh, states to, yeah, to, the, to the extent that they can. So I think, I mean, I just think that there's a big, big conversation to have here that on the one level, I agree with you, you got to inject it and be like, hey, we got to talk about U.S. empire. But I also think that we need some people, maybe those of us who have been thinking about and writing about this for a while, to I think now to start taking it to a step further because I think there's been enough material out there uh, David Vine, uh, National Priorities Project. I mean, there's a ton of shit out there about U.S. Empire, documentaries, books. I mean, we right. can go on and on. Lectures on YouTube. I think it's to the point now where working with other people around the world, trying to envision what is the global order after this? Yeah. We do see China rising, but we see the United States declining. We don't want to see the United States fall into a pit, and we don't want to see China in the state that it's in right now with the kind of like laws towards civil liberties, et cetera, et cetera, become the force on the global scale. That's like, this is now it's either this or this. And I, there has to be something better than both of those options. I think. Well, I think, I think you're absolutely right. And by the way, before we get off talking about empire, I would highly recommend you started it. (laughs) Shame on me. Um, I would just like to recommend to, to listeners Alfred W. McCoy's book, uh, In the Shadows of the American Century. It's a brilliant, very sophisticated, very nuanced look at the world. Uh, and McCoy has brought up some of these issues. I mean, one of the things that the, that's made the U.S. look a lot different is things like uh, at least supporting human rights, not not obviously always in the breach but that rhetoric of human rights and there's there's been some things around so you're 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 touching on some some interesting things that McCoy's playing with and but this this book is extremely uh, important I think um, but I think this is one of the things now most of my political work has not been with the veterans community it's it's been in the labor movement and that I have been working very strongly since 1983 on building global labor solidarity. And I think this is, this is important work for a couple of reasons. First of all, the, when we talk about global issues and globalization, 
it gets projected as though it's a monolithic force sweeping the world like a global tidal wave. Um, and that's part of it, but it's only part. I think we have to look at it in two parts. So on one hand, you have this top-down wave like it's being projected that is projecting capitalism, corporate control, and the militarism with that, Let's say a top-down version of it. But there's a bottom-up version where people around the world are trying to build global solidarity and work to create societies on completely different values of, of respect for each other, for, for, for support on collectivity and things like that. That's also happening. We see it in the feminist movement. We see it in the anarchist movement. We see it, we see it among a few in the labor movement and things like this. And, and this building, this bottom-up solidarity, I think is the important thing because it's got to counter this top-down stuff, whether by the U.S. or by China. I don't think China running the world would be in many, in many ways better than, than the U.S. I don't think they're the evil that... That many people, especially, I mean, I just I was listening to uh, an interview with uh, this afternoon with uh, Jake Tapper. He was interviewing people, Peter Navarro, one of Trump's people, and the guy says, "Well, the China virus is the China virus." As far as I was concerned, I mean, Tap uh, Tapper later cut Navarro off. He's been such a fool. But as far as I'm concerned, as soon as somebody starts talking China virus, because it's a very racist trope. I would just shut them off right then. I would just, I was just in the interview. I don't want to hear this stuff. Um, well, that's why none of this is helpful right now. Yeah, I mean, because of climate change and everything else, like we actually need. We're gonna to have to work something out. Yeah, we them. need global cooperation more than ever. Yeah, and but you have these right wing hawks in in Trump's administration. I mean, I'm scared to death that there could be something jump off in the South China Sea. Yeah. Partly China's reaction. China's not not being very friendly there either but the u.s wants to keep poking at it and if you know if there were to be fighting uh break out um the u.s is going to get overwhelmed there you know from what i can see and you know are we going to go to war against china are we going to send are we going to send american troops to invade china i mean we're not well no it's not even an option because it would just be a a war of ballistic missiles and Attrition. nuclear weapons. Yeah, yeah we get there real quickly. Yeah, I mean, we never... That, that's why it's not... I mean, that's why... It's weird because in some ways, of course, this has given us a simple option. Yeah. There's really not... There's two options here. There's either... The option is either cooperation, make it through climate change, deal with a changing global economy, deal with a changing climate, deal with militarism in a, in a reasonable way, or, you know... Just everybody's going to die because we're either going to cook the planet or we're going to launch nuclear weapons. And I mean, there's no, you know, I mean, it makes it simple in a lot of ways. It's like this, our options at this stage in history, we don't have, it's not like we have a series of 20 options to go with. Well, what's, what's so frustrating is that particularly when the right goes, critiques China, it's never done with any, any effort to be nuanced like what you're doing. It's like, oh, these Chinese, they want to they invade us. Well, folks, China or nobody else is going to invade the United States. <laughs> I mean, if nothing else, we got more guns than we got people. Yeah. <laughs> it ain't going we'll to arm happen. our fucking dogs. Don't you dare yeah, come yeah. over here. My cat will have yeah. an AR-15. <laughs> and and he'll, he'll be well-trained, too. And a suicide vest. Yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's insane. We can't. 
think of it that way. It's it's yep. so. I mean, think about this. Even the greatest so-called greatest invasion in the history of warfare was the Normandy invasion, across twenty miles of water. We're talking, you know, and that almost failed. And if if anything with China, I think the if there is a conflict with China, just like a lot of conflicts are going now and been going these. Uh, mini proxy conflicts they would be in africa because they they've been colon- softly colonizing africa yeah. no, uh, you're right. they go in there and and <sighs> the issue here too is that a lot of as long as this idea of these international institutions whether it's world bank international monetary fund world trade organization like as long as these organizations are running things like that's why china created this block bricks brazil russia india indonesia south africa um they're creating the same systems. I mean, I've studied this stuff and they right. literally, I, I would sit there and we have students from Africa and you'll have 50% of students from Africa saying like, they're literally colonizing us again. The other will be like, well, no, they're coming here and they're building infrastructure for us that we've never had. And it gives us ability to plug into this market system yeah. and this BRICS bank. Oh, you know, they, they're basically doing the same thing as World Bank. What they're doing differently is that they might forgive something, might forgive a loan or debt. Uh, they might give more grants. But just trying to sip in to, to kind of get that trust. And then once that trust is obtained, they're going to do the same thing. It's just, you know, it depends. But, yeah, I mean, there have been... You know, with our operations in Africa and them seeping, you know, colonizing there in Africa, I think if if anything, that might be um, it's a place it, where it, just like that little proxy, just using each country against each other or uh, tribes or whatever communities. So. Yeah. No, I think you're right there. I mean, I think that's a real real risk. But it's it's you know, are we do we want conflict with China or not? I mean, they have their interests, and we have to recognize that. Uh, every country has its interests, and certainly these bigger countries, these more powerful countries, have, the, have their interests. They've got to be, you've got to address those in some way. But the United States has its own interests. It's not like we're out here uh, all perfect and, and we're acting for the good of the world. Bullshit. We're acting for our purposes, and we've always done it, and we're always going to do it. I think it was one of the great British uh, theorists said something like, uh, countries, countries have friends that come and go. Our interests never leave. Yep. And that's something that needs to be remembered. But it's, it's not just us. It's not just the Brits or the Russians or the Chinese. It's all of them. They all have this. And we've got to find ways to recognize these and, and use and, uh, <coughs> excuse me, and try to address some of these these issues and stuff in ways that don't destroy us all. Yeah, well, and 78% of China's foreign direct investment and in companies are all from Europe or the United States. So, I mean, then this is, this is something that's been going on for a long time in yeah. terms of China and that's currency. I mean, there's a reason why I got interested in that because I was just, whoa, what's going on here? So we're, we have all these corporations all these investments going in china but then for the american people we make it look as if we're kind of trying to wrestle with them a little bit and say like hey they're uh, they're fooling us but 
No, that's that's what allows them to uh, to make that capital because you go in there and specifically on local levels, on local levels, there is no regulation of anything. Right. And so the companies are able to exploit the communities, exploit the resource, exploit the labor and exploit environment. The environment. Yep. yep. And then they, you know, and they just stay there until they go somewhere else. And so it it is a very fertile ground for capital. And it's, you know, it's been since, what, 1979 when they entered the uh, global market. Well, I think it was later into into the 90s. 79. 79 was when... They opened up, yeah. They opened up, but yep. it was a very controlled opening up. It didn't really open still up is. Until, yeah, but until about 95. It still is, like, in the when way. When did they enter the uh, world trade? I think it was 95. Yeah, because uh, they're using, they're going to, they're obviously already using that against Biden. But see, there's, a, there's an interesting thing here, and this has not been addressed well um, in this country. Um, one of the things that we saw during the, it started in the 70s, but definitely took off in the 80s and 90s, uh, was the deindustrialization of this country. Right. You know, I mean, Michael Moore, to his credit, and he, he busted this back in, in Roger and me back in 1989, where, where he, he saw this. And what was happening is that American corporations wanted to get away from a strong union movement. So they started offshoring. They went to Mexico first, uh, and then over time they went to Malaysia. They went to the Philippines. They went all over Southeast Asia, and then l- later they shifted to to China. And you get you get these folks that say, "Well, China's stealing our jobs." First of all, nobody owns a job under capitalism. It's all controlled by the corporation. Um, you don't own your job, sucker. However much they tell you, hmm. you don't own your job. So we're going to go overseas because we can get away from the American labor movement. We can then invest over there where we have governments that will control their workforces much more than we can control ours that with lower wage rates, you know, and controlled, hardworking people. And they're not stealing our jobs. U.S. corporate managers, and this is also happening in other countries, but I'll just speak of the U.S. U.S. corporate managers are the ones that made the decisions to shut down factories in the U.S. and ship them overseas. Now, yeah. you get, I mean, this is this has devastated the whole northern industrial belt from, say, Milwaukee. That's why this shit Chicago. plays. You know, that's yeah. why all this shit plays. I mean, oh. that's why the Trump shit with China plays. That's why the shit with Mexico plays. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that devastation, as we see every day, is real. Right. You know, and nothing's gone back to replace it. But you get somebody like Trump that says, oh, I'm going to bring all these jobs back. First of all, one, he's brought back very few jobs, if, you know, if any. Yeah. But in any case, they may bring the production back to the U.S., but... When they build their factories, if they rebuild their factories, they're putting robots and yep. computers Automation, and stuff like that with very little to no work, no American workers getting those jobs. The days of the U.S. as an industrial power and providing a lot of jobs for working class people are dead and gone and they ain't never coming back. And, and when any politician says, all right, tell us how, show us how, where they come, because they can't do it. And this tends to get put on either the Democrats or the Republicans. And the truth is, neither one know what's going on. Neither one is being honest with the American people. They're playing us for fools. Now, we can continue to accept that role as fuel, fools, 
or we can start getting together with each other, educating ourselves, training ourselves to think critically about what's being said, learning from others, going to alternative media, things like this, getting different viewpoints, or we're going to get played uh, suckers to death. I mean, just think of the COVID-19 stuff, how so many people have bought the lies of Donald Trump that a, a two-year-old shouldn't accept. You know, and now he just got caught, you know, him knowing the, the pandemic was going to be many times worse than the flu, and now two weeks later he told the American people, oh, it's nothing. You know, because people don't think and they don't think critically about who's saying stuff, whose interests they're speaking in and things like this. We get played for fools. And now we've got almost 200,000 dead Americans to this, to this pandemic. We're 5% of the world's population. We're, you know, tw- over 20% of the world's casualties from this pandemic. Losers. Yeah. Those are losers. <laughs> yeah. No, well, I mean, and it's not. I mean, the thing is, is that there's a lot of people who... Uh, there ha- there's going to have to be a way to have uh, deeper conversations about the politics and where we want to go in terms of new global systems. I think, yeah, so the more we can get people to understand why these things are happening, the better off because we need people thinking about what they want as an alternative. Right. I mean, that's the big thing is, you know, whether it's the South China Sea or lack of international cooperation. I mean, shit, here in the U.S., lack of even national coordination, logistical coordination just to deal with this, that without big, big systems, I mean, this is why, um, you know, I just recently wrote an article in Counterpunch, and the reason I wrote that article was partly to do with what we're talking about, and that is we face really complex problems and on a global scale. And anything that goes into this mindset of like we're going to retreat or go into like we're carve out a little small corner of this earth and we're going to figure it out over here while the rest of the world collapses is not an option so i think you know we have to have really really deep and hopefully creative and interesting conversations about what in the world would replace these global systems because we can't keep doing we can't we're not going to be able to make it through what is coming without radically changing things. Oh, I and totally, so, I you know, totally on the, agree. but one thing I want to want to say is it requires people being willing to sit down with each other for a few minutes. Yeah. They want, they want stuff in 15 seconds. I mm. can't explain nothing in 30 seconds. No, you give me 30 minutes. I can, I can explain things to you that even make sense to you. I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. Sure. You may agree, you may disagree. That's up to you. But you can I can explain things in 30 minutes. I can't in 30 seconds. Anybody asking you to explain it in 30 seconds, they're being a fool and they're playing you for a fool if you think and and you're playing yourself for a fool if you think you can. You've got to have you've got to have that time to at least be able to put stuff out, to listen to how they respond with, you know, and so they can question you and see, well that doesn't make sense or could you elaborate over here more and stuff like that? And people have to have to be willing to give that time. If we don't have a minimal amount of time, at very least 30 minutes, we can't have any conversation in any depth. It's all slogan. No. It's this ideological shit you get on Fox News, but you also get on MSNBC. It's it's not just it's not just on one side. No. But it also by doing this, you build the trust between people and we've got the the trust in this country has really been undermined and particularly 
for the last 60, 70 years. And this has got to be rebuilt. And it's not going to be solved by by voting for this person or that person. I mean, yes, I wish Bernie Sanders would, would have won because he's going to ask questions that, say, Donald Trump or Joe Biden aren't going to ask. But even with Bernie, Bernie wasn't going to solve all the problems. Basically, it's up to us. and We have to rebuild this trust. I think person by person or damn near, and we've got to think that long term out. How do we bring things together? And I think this is one of the exciting things about when you guys started Park here, to get people together as a way to bring them together so you could at least start knowing people that you might never met. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, metalheads or or black poets or whatever. We all came together in here. Mm -hmm. We did some things better than others. You know, it wasn't a panacea, but I thought it was a really, really important initiative, and I hope... I hope we can get past this damn pandemic and get back to it again because it was, I think, a really, really brilliant move, and, and I'm excited to be part of it. But this building the trust, getting to know people, I think has to go basically on a one-to-one basis. It's, I think the country is that in that kind of... We've suffered too much, and we've suffered under the Democrats, we've suffered under the Republicans, and the idea that anybody's going to save us is a joke... Um, it's gonna. If we're going to change it, if we're going to make these changes, that you're absolutely right, we have to deal with on all for all kinds of issues, all kinds of, of ideas. Is we've got to ordinary people have got to come together one to one and reestablish that trust. That hey, I can disagree with you, but I'm willing to listen to what you have to say. I'll question you if I don't think you're right or something doesn't make sense. But I will listen to you. I'll give you that respect. And I think that's the thing we're lacking in this country is the, is the basic lack of respect that, that people have other ideas. People see the world differently than we do. But one of the things I've learned over my life is that if you treat people with respect, that you can sit down and you can talk stuff out and you can at least have a conversation. Now, obviously, it doesn't solve all, but I think that's a sort of a building block for, for almost anything we want to do. Yeah. Yeah. No, right now, I mean, look, there's no, uh, there, the problem is, is that we're running into a situation where there's such a heightened sense of, like, everybody's digging in, both sides have dug in. Yeah. So, I don't know how to put this. I guess on the one hand, we try and open as much space as we can for that kind of dialogue. On the other hand, you know, it's like, what are we going to do? I mean, we're not going to answer this question tonight. (laughs) We're not going to answer this question if we had eight more of these podcasts. But, you know, what are we going to do with the tens of millions of people who actually do identify with Trumpism? and, And that, you know, the problem that I can see is that I agree with you theoretically that that's we're in such a rough spot as a country that we do need that kind of I think attention and care individually but we know we don't have enough time to do that one on one with everybody the tough part about reaching out to the other side is that as we've noted many times on this podcast is that there's they're not organized either yeah so it's really tough to as we've you know so people will speak in these terms or they'll say things like the left should reach out to Trump's base. Okay. You know, what does that mean? Um, 
How are you going to do it? Well, how are you going to do it? And, and who are we talking about? I mean, we live in an area where Trump received a significant amount of votes. And, you know, when people say that to us, we're usually like, well, where do they hang out and where's their organization and who's the, you know, who do we contact? It just, that that doesn't exist. So it's really, it's really tough right now. I cut slack to people who are organizing in places, especially like where we live, because <laughs> there's not a bunch of people, there's not established institutions and organizations that exist, progressive, liberal, conservative, or otherwise. So it's, you know, you're dealing with a lot of individuals who are very fragmented. And so we run up into this problem where, we need more poor people and working class people to be involved with political process. But in order for them to get involved with the political process, they need some resources, some time. So it's really tough because you have, um, I was having this conversation with Serge the other day and also with uh, Michael Albert on the phone. Uh-huh. And it's like, you have people who develop differently at different times. So you, you know, right now we have a situation where we have a lot of, middle class, upper middle class, professional class people who are involved with these official political institutions, parties, and so on. Um, but we need to get more poor and working class people involved. Mm-hmm. But in order to do that, those people need a little more time. They need, you know, it's like this constant pressure of being in the system. We see it even just on our block here, right down this on the other side of park. You know, neighbors coming and going, people coming and going in other parts of the city where Allison lives, same thing. You know, she'll have a neighbor here, then they move out, they got a different job, they got laid off, couldn't pay rent. Mm-hmm. So we have to, in my opinion, in the short term, we have to at least have, we have to at least coalesce around a series of economic and social programs that I think we could get people to get behind and would give people some time which to me is like if you're not worried about your medical bill, if you're not worried about your rent, and if you're not worried about your student loans, that opens some time for you to think about something else except for like spinning on this machine because this machine isn't the same as, as you know, studying labor history. This is such a different labor market. So it's not like, you know, you can tell these workers like, well, yeah, well, go after your boss. And they're like, well, you know, my boss is Uber and there's no drivers in my area. It's not like we live in a fucking mining town right. where it's like, Hey, everybody, like everybody works at this one place. Like, let, you know what I mean? Let's get everybody together, go after the boss. We can make more money. Everybody can live better or whatever it may be. Right. right. It's so different in this atmosphere. And so I think, you know, these are really, really tough questions. And I, I, my skepticism at this point is with anyone who provides really simple answers. Oh, I, I mean, I think we, I, I, you know what I mean? I, I really am, am very like weary of people who are providing those kind of answers because I think we, we face some really unprecedented challenges and we also face some really complex problems that if we don't talk about them in that way, like you're saying, giving each other respect, we can't even do that just on the left, let alone people outside of the left. Yeah. I mean, we can't even, there's people within movements who we don't even give respect to. But I think also when you're talking, especially when you're talking, when you think about talking to people, I think once you can make some sort of a human connection, you can find out whether they're being ideologues or whether they're being sincere. The, d- the difference, it's probably bad terminology, but uh, I mean the ideologue part is, is uh, definitely uh, a good term. I mean those people that 
have their minds made up. Don't bother me with the facts. I don't even want to spend time with them. Right. Okay. If you are, you can disagree with me. I have no problem with anybody disagreeing. Even my university classes, I tell my students, you don't have to agree with me. You're welcome to to disagree with me, even on tests, blah, blah, blah. The idea here is if you have some sincere beliefs, I want to sit down and listen to them because I want to understand why. You know, uh, and I'm willing to give you that respect where I will genuinely listen to you and try to learn. And, and I would expect that you'd, in turn, you would do the same with me. I have no problem with people who are conservative uh, but are thinking. It's the ideologues that I just don't have time with. And, and I think we've got, and we have it on the left as well. I don't want, uh, I don't want to spend time with the ideologues. I want people who are creative, who are wanting to think things out, who are willing to look at difficult situations and try to understand them in their complexity so that we can, we can, uh, uh, we can do this. I mean, I think about, for example, I teach a class on called race and ethnic diversity. Um, I get, you know, over the years I've had a lot of students who there a lot of white students whose only connection in this area with a black person has been through through the window of a KFC or a McDonald's or something like this. Know nothing about them, so they come into this class. They think, oh, uh, it's class on race and ethnic diversity, huh? So it's a black-white issue. This will be simple. I'll knock this out. Well, one of the things that I do in the class is show them how wrong that is. It's a very complex issue. Um, we have to look at it global. We ha- globally, we have to look at where people came from and the times and this and that and all kinds of things. It's a very complex issue. However, given a semester, I can, I can help you understand, or a comparable period of time, I can uh, help get you to understand this in its complexity so you figure out what you really want to do. And given that time, we can do that. We're all of us... Uh, Human beings are, are, you know, as long as we're being we're creative, we're able to come up with, with innovative solutions, and that's what I think gives me hope that we're going to make it through this mess, as bad as it looks. Uh, um, but we've got to have time. We've got to give each other the respect and the time to sit down with each other and listen to each other and treat each other with respect. And I think that the left can learn, those, those that are, say, leftists can learn from the conservatives and vice versa, but we've got to talk real issues. We can't just talk, oh, Joe Biden's going to save us or uh, Donald Trump's going to save us. No, it's not, or Bernie Sanders is going to save us. None of that's going to save us. We've got, to, we've got to find ways that we can work together. The, the good thing, I think, about, one of the things about the left is that we do have at least... Uh, nascent organizations where people are coming together and trying to figure this stuff out. I don't think we're doing it very well. There are a lot of problems. You know, you know my critique of the left. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been there for a long time. And I think the, the point I'm trying to make is that we don't have our act all together like we know everything. We don't. Mm-hmm. We're trying to address things. We're trying to uh, tr- meet people try to treat them, at, at best, we're trying to treat them with respect and trying to address real problems. And I think that's one of our strengths. But we don't have it all together, and we've got to, we've got to, we've got to keep that in mind is all. We can't forget that. And when we do meet people who are different with us, 
you know, to talk to them to try to understand why why they they got involved or how do you you know how do you get involved in this movement or whatever you know that you're part of? How'd that happen? Just like we would do somebody on the left, I think that would pay a lot of you know pay off because a lot of us, like you're right, you know, we do have to pay, you know have our jobs, we have to pay our bills, we have our families to take care of, our loved ones and stuff like that. We're not individuals. Everybody's been trying to convince us that we're all individuals and anybody beyond our immediate circle is, is no good. They're a threat to us. I think that's a lie. It's been propagated for 40 years since the election of Ronald Reagan. It actually started in the, under Carter for the last couple of years. But basically since Reagan got elected in 80, we've had this ultra-individual, I got mine, screw you, Jack, culture and society. We've got to break that down. That's, that's, a, that's a disaster and we're seeing the byproduct of this under Trump, uh, and he's feeding it. Um, and it's, I think it's terrible, and I think that's why we've got to find ways to make sure this election works and, and, and get rid of him, because we've got to find ways where we can come together. Just because you are rep Republican or conservative or however you deal yourself... You, if you're different than me, all right, I, I can understand that, but let's sit down and talk because I'd like to know why. And I'd like to, you to know why I think the way that I do. And let's see what we've got in common, where we can come together. I think there's that commonality is there, and that's one of the things that I think holds us together as Americans, and we've got to go back and, and treat it that way. Mm -hmm.